Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to Swarfcast. Before we start, we have a quick favor to ask you. If you love the show, please rate it and write a review on your podcast app. Or tell somebody about it. It really makes a difference for us, and we'd appreciate it. Okay, on with the show. When we networked all these cars together with Lyft and Uber, way more people use taxis and, and ride shares than they used to, right? And in general, we see this kind of shared capacities effect. And the shame, the irony is that the place that it would actually benefit the most is in manufacturing and, and doesn't exist at all, right? This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graf. Our guest on today's show is Sunny Han founder and CEO of Fulcrum, a cloud-based enterprise resource planning system, or ERP, for small to medium-sized manufacturing companies. Besides creating a great ERP, Han says his true aspiration is to create a vast network of manufacturing companies, enabling them to work together seamlessly. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. I'm thrilled to have Sunny Han, founder and CEO of Fulcrum. Welcome to the show, Sunny. Thank you for having me. Uh, just to get started, I want to find out what Fulcrum is and um, get your story. So just to get it started, what is Fulcrum? Fulcrum is a software platform built for manufacturers, um, not for super huge manufacturers, but for smaller manufacturers. And in many uh, industrially developed countries like the United States or like Germany or uh, Japan, um, small manufacturing is one of the bedrock cornerstones of the economy. What do you mean by small manufacturing? How, how big is small? Um, our, our software does some pretty cool stuff with um, artificial intelligence and heuristics. And usually when a manufacturer is has a team of more than 12 people, 15 people, the problems and the, uh, the benefit that we're able to deliver is large enough where, where, where it makes sense. So typically it's somebody who has, you know, a, a handful of work centers and uh, a dozen employees on the shop floor and who are doing um, production quantities of, um, you know, they're not a long run production company. They're not doing basically the same part over and over again, but, uh, you know, they're, they're actually a going concern that manufacturing is their core business. So, okay. Up until how, how many, like how big would the companies be? We don't work with any publicly traded companies, or if we do, we work with a small division within their company. Okay. Um, but we're not doing production planning or any sort of, uh, 
um, software analysis for any other portions of their business. So okay, but you said like uh, you know up to a hundred million in revenue you might be working with. Yeah, some of our larger customers are doing maybe a couple hundred million dollars in revenue. Uh, that revenue doesn't always represent, you know, the amount of work they're doing. They could be working with really rare alloys or expensive materials or something like that. Um, but yeah, that's probably the upper limit for what we're working with right now. Okay. So that's interesting. You said like smaller runs, you know, our, a lot of our audience is really high production, high volume, you know, like multi-spindle screw machines, et cetera. And then there's, there is a lot of smaller stuff mixed in. Do you also work with those firms, people making hundreds of thousands of parts? Yeah, we do. And for our customers that are used, that have some Swiss screw machines, uh, their production lengths, it might take a couple weeks for them to do an operation after they set it up. They might be doing a, a quarter million of something, but that isn't still what I would, I wouldn't consider that a long run production manufacturer. Those companies I would say are like the ball bearing manufacturers. They have one line that's literally running 24 seven for 362 days out of the year. The machine is taken down, um, you know, three times for some sort of maintenance and their problems are mostly just based on, you know, what is the global demand for this particular commodity? Mm -hmm. The real reason why we exist is because those problems are solved. Um, not, not really fully solved, but they're way more solved than the problems for the smaller manufacturers. So that's where we're trying to focus is on people who are still using software or, or no software. Um, you know, that was, that was maybe adopted in the late eighties or early nineties. There's just a yeah. lot more stuff out there now. So, okay. Give me, you know, a lot of people listening to this are pretty hip to the, the lingo of an ERP, but for those of us who aren't, Give the five-year-old version of uh, an ERP, maybe maybe 10-year-old. <laughs> sure. Yeah, traditionally, uh, what an ERP meant for a company was it was one place that you could put all your data from different places. And the, the goal of that ERP system would be to sort out all that information and put it in the right place so you can make sense of it. So imagine that it's like a kind of like a coin sorting machine. Uh, you're dumping all this data in and it's putting all the quarters in one place, all the nickels in one place, all the dimes in one place. So you can do some reporting on it and see how many quarters, nickels and dimes that you have, right? So different people would put in quotes or sales orders or what happened to the part or whether they bought something or received it or was broken or had scrap or was damaged or had to be reworked or whatever it may be. And then all of it was going into one giant pool, one big database, and we could pull information out of it and give you answers that otherwise would have taken time to to get to gather all that information together if it wasn't in one place, right? We um, fundamentally are an ERP software system, but um, we we don't do we do all of that and then a lot more. One of the things that we have from a communication standpoint is that it's very difficult for people to hear the acronym ERP and not have something they already think about it, right? Mm -hmm. um, we want to under to have other people understand that all of our software is designed with a new and and fresh look at how software technology can be created. So while we do aggregate a bunch of data, we allow you to, to put a bunch of information together, we're able to do a lot more with it. We're able to automate things. We're able to say, all right, we've detected a pattern. Every single time Sunny is on this uh, screw machine, things go wrong. But every single time Noah's on it, things are right. And <laughs> I can automatically prefer to schedule Noah on the machine than Sunny, or uh, we can see certain things like this vendor says they have seven days of lead time, 
But on average, in April and March, their lead times go uh, go up and their lead times go down the real actual delivery date, right? So in order for me to plan my production correctly, if I rely on buying these components from them, I either need to know that internally so that uh, my production schedule and you know my the way that I work, it, it isn't where we're not solving these problems by just buying more stuff earlier. We're actually knowing when it's supposed to arrive or we can select a different vendor, right? So um, in the past, you'd have to put all your coins into this machine, the the rolls of quarters would come out, you'd see how much there was and you'd kind of go put it somewhere else. What we want is we want to, we want to deliver this effect where the action doesn't require you to pull a report, it just does it, right? And you can trust it to do the right thing because it knows manufacturing and it knows your business and it's very customized to who you are. So just one more step in anything that, if you have to just go and check and it's going to be the same answer anyway, let's automate all those things so that we can get yeah. our really smaller manufacturing people working on actual manufacturing. So, yeah, well, I mean, everything is about automation these days. If, if you want to get ahead and be better than the rest, um, g- give me, give me a little story. How, how you decided to found this company? What, what is your background and uh, what inspired you? Yeah, I've been working with something technology since I was a little kid. My mom was a graduate student at the University of Minnesota. Uh, She was studying computer science. And uh, when I was seven years old, she uh, gave me access to a computer at home and I started to write small software programs. So uh, when I was a kid, we didn't my, both my parents were in grad school. We had no money. So I played games on, on other people's computers and saw them or at the computer lab at, at my mom's, um, you know, at the university, uh, but didn't really have the ability to buy them. So I wrote kind of replica games to try <laughs> to see if I could both enjoy the game and, and also, uh, you know, learn how to, how to program things. Well, so, how did you, how, how did you learn how to do it? I mean, they didn't have nearly the resources. How, how, when are we talking right now? What years? How oh, old are you? This would be 1992 is probably when I first started. That's when I got my um, Gopher email address. Gopher was the uh, email client that was written at the University of Minnesota, uh, kind of in the early days of the internet. And uh, I don't know, I was just, I'm, I, I'm really grateful for all the help that other people gave. I just hung out in, in her um in her lab and other people would see me struggling. So you were like seven years old and you were hanging out in the computer lab. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, my, my dad was in grad school too. He was a, a civil engineering, um, graduate, a PhD student. And, uh, I would hang out in a soil lab as well, you know, <laughs> playing with different sand and soils. So, uh, I guess I've just been around, you know, those environments ever since I was a kid, but those other graduate students that my mom in my mom's computer lab helped me a lot. I mean, just with little things like syntax or kind of understanding what is even possible. Um, there were just little things that I did that, that made sense to me as a kid in a straightforward way. But I think to me, even back then programming in, in the early languages like Fortran and basic, it was, it was fairly um, intuitive, right? We've gotten a lot more complex over time because we want to do much more powerful things, much more abstract things with what, how we do things. So languages have gotten a little bit more nuanced and a little bit more difficult. But uh, back then, it, a lot of it was kind of plain English. If you wanted to print something on a screen, you'd the command the was print, right? And you would put whatever was afterwards. So um, I learned a lot of things that I think changed the way that I think about technology and software that was really, really valuable. Mm-hmm. But I never got a formal, um, you know, computer science or software engineering 
degree myself. I, I made websites for people in, in, in middle school and, and, and in high school. And, um, and in college, I, I wanted to study medicine. So I went uh, to school and, and studied pharmaceutical sciences and um, ended up writing large Fortran scripts for automated experimentation as well. So that's was kind of my signal to go back into into something technology based. So that's that's how I ended up doing consulting work. I wanted to learn about business. I, I, I decided as a post undergraduate person that I wanted to do something with business and um, worked as a consultant for a while doing some turnaround analysis stuff. And that's really where I met a lot of manufacturers. I met um, you know, a couple hundred manufacturers over the courses of a few years and helped them implement software, wrote custom software for them, wrote custom ERPs, and and really kind of understood all sorts of different kinds of manufacturings. Question. Uh, when, as an outside consultant and you came into manufacturing companies, how did they look at you? What did, did, they, what did they say? Like, who's this 20-year-old kid coming in? telling us how to run our business. We've done this for 30 years, 50 years. Uh, did you meet a lot of resistance? Sometimes. I think my approach was not very combative. I don't know if that was because I knew intuitively that it wouldn't work, but in, in my life, my philosophy isn't just to tell people this is what you should do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when anybody asks me for advice or, or asks me to take a look at a problem, my first thing that I do is I ask as many questions as I can possibly ask to get as much information about them specifically and about the domain space as possible. Right. So that's smart. Um, you know, one of my hobbies is I make sushi at home. So how I learned wasn't from watching YouTube videos. It was from going to really good sushi restaurants and having the, uh, respectable way of asking, Hey, how do you do this? And how do you do that? And why do you do this? Why do you do that? And, and that knowledge is really what's powerful. And, and same with manufacturing. When I didn't know something, I think one of the biggest things that I was taught by my mentor back then was if you don't know something, ask, Yeah, uh, it's much worse to, to pretend that you know it, if it's that critical to their business, right? The worst case is that they are going to think that you don't know something, but the best case is you learn something, right? So mm-hmm. that was my approach. And I honestly never had anybody say, oh, you don't know that. Why are you here? People were very gracious in general. I mean, if they wanted help or they had a problem that they couldn't solve, um, they were they're very forthcoming with information. So Because I was kind of picturing like the CEO says, hey, we're having this consultant come in. This company, you know, they're going to make some changes. They're going to whip ourselves into shape. And then you come in and sure, the the CEO is bought in. But uh, that was my question of getting people to buy in to your system. And now that's what you're trying to do now, too. Right. I mean, you've got to. Absolutely. You've you have to convince people that you are better. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all about trust, right? I mean, if we're asking people to go away from something that's felt viscerally comfortable to them for years, let's say having paper travelers or um, having a binder full of MSDS sheets or whatever it may be, and go to a different system, the biggest issue isn't risk, it's trust, right? And and trust is, is, is a few components. There's a, a really great lecture, um, you know, out of Harvard that talks a lot about what, what the components of trust are. And those components that she talks about are empathy. Do I understand you or mm. am I trying to apply what I know generic about manufacturing to you? And the second is um, 
you know, you have to be able to follow through on the things that you say you're going to do. If you say this is how it's going to be, it has to turn out that way, right? You have to have some level of reliability, right? So if you understand who they are and you're able to follow through on, on what you're, um, you're, you're able to do, as lo- and then the last piece is logic. Does what you're trying to do make sense, right? Does it make sense on some level? Can you even explain why this is going to benefit them somehow? What's in it for them, right? Sure. If you, if you wrap those three things up, we've never really had any problems with that, right? The only issues that I've ever had in my life where I'm asking someone to do something better for them, not for me, but for them, is if, if I'm missing one of those three components, either I don't understand them or my logic is bad or it's because I, I'm, I'm not actually trustworthy, right? I don't actually do the things I say I'm going to do, so. Okay, one of the things that is different about your system from the traditional ones is the cloud-based system. And when I heard, you know, I, uh, I admit, you know, all I knew was what certain customers talk, you know, they mentioned their ERP system and I just figured... Everything is on the cloud these days. So, um, how how is yours different being on the cloud? Are there any others on the cloud? Give give me the the spin on that. Yeah, I mean, um, overall, the it's becoming clearer and clearer every day that everything moving to the cloud is is likely going to be the way that everything is. Now, it might not be completely everything. But there's just so many advantages for designing and architecting software in that way that um, it's it'd be very difficult for me to imagine a future where we're back to giant servers that are in a office closet somewhere that have large, you know, thick wires coming out of them going into a computer screen that has to be physically plugged in. Right. That 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 isn't there's so many disadvantages there that that even though that's what I grew up with, that isn't going to be the future. Um, I would say that. Out of the out of the manufacturers that have a system, I would estimate probably seventy to eighty percent of them are still doing it primarily on premise or even higher than that. Um, they have some server that's on site that they have to hire somebody else to yeah. maintain that they have to install updates for and things like that. Um, there are other um, companies that are doing either portions or the full thing. Um, you know, online we there's a company that we work with that we know called Paperless Parts. They automate a lot of the quoting pieces. They, they do a lot with sheet metal and volumetric calculations. You upload a print and it tells you how much material it's going to use automatically. Uh, all that is on the cloud and wouldn't really be possible if it was on-premise. So um, there's just a lot that that's happened. Uh, Microsoft just really recently won a contract with uh, the intelligence agencies in the United States to do um, you know cloud storage for you know, some of the most, most secret information that we have in our country. So uh, from a trust standpoint, from a reliability standpoint, it, it's certainly there and, and good enough for, um, for the Pentagon. It, it, it should be good enough for, <laughs> for most of our companies, right, that we work with. Listeners, do you have an idea for a future episode of Swarfcast? Or is your company interested in advertising on the Swarfcast podcast? If so, please send us an email at swarfcastpodcast at gmail.com. That's swarfcastpodcast at gmail.com. And you said that, like, the master plan is for these companies to be connected. Explain that. Yeah, when I was doing that consulting work, one of the things I was doing was pulling receivables and, and payables lists all the time and see whose vendors you have and what customers you have. And one thing that I realized is that everything is really connected. And so that experience, 
plus my experience, painful experience in implementing systems and, and writing custom software for them to get them to work for, for companies. And then also, um, I, I, I was born in China. I left uh, in 1989, but uh, I went back there after I was uh, kind of working already. And I spent a little bit of time in, um, in some of the markets in China. And it was just really insane how you could find a vendor for everything that you wanted to build all within one market. And you would have your whole bill of materials spec'd out and priced out, your whole supply chain agreements, capacities known. You're talking about like minutes. there's there's just like a, in like a building, there's just yeah. a bunch mm-hmm. of tables and you would go around and talk to people. Yeah, you'd go to your your you know, your screw vendor, you go to your uh, you know, PC board vendor, you go to your glass vendor or whatever it is, and they're all represented in in, in those places physically, right? So um, now there's some exceptions there for sure, but that type of networking and coexistence doesn't really exist here in the United States. We have, um, you know, trade shows like Fabtech or IMTS or things like that. Um, but we don't have any way of knowing, Hey, who are all the people that are out there? Maybe you have uh, a memory of the old Thomas register, right? It's this giant book that had all the manufacturers <laughs> that wanted to be listed in there. Now there's Thomas net, but, um, the level of collaboration and kind of supply chain, um, gelling just doesn't exist here in the United States. And people ask me all the time when they, when they, when they know that I'm working with manufacturers or with things that are in supply chain, the first question they ask is what about all this outsourcing stuff? What about all this stuff that, you know, 15 years ago went overseas to China? When will that ever come back? And the, the real answer is if you dig down into those numbers, we could feasibly double the amount of manufacturing GDP here in the United States with only a 20% increase in efficiency and throughput. Hmm. And, and as if you look at the trends, you know, macroeconomically, the number of products is going to go up. The quality of products is going to go up. The production runs of products is going to go down. And, and that stems from aerospace, you know, all the way to electronics and computing, all the way to, um, you know, consumer products, right? So, um, as as production quantities go down, as as the number of units that I order, I, maybe I don't order four million pairs of denim. I, maybe I order just one hundred and fifty thousand. The value of producing it overseas, having it sit on a boat and come here, is going to go down, right? And mm. that isn't to say that I'm not for global trade. I think half a trillion dollars of 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 our stuff is exported overseas. There's things that we're going to buy from Japan, or we're going to buy from Europe, we're going to buy from Africa, and and from from South America and from Asia that is best to be built there. But there's also a lot of stuff that we've traditionally made here that we use here that we need here that should be made here, right? And those are the things that I want to help bring back into this country. Interesting. So, what about your product going to? Europe or China and helping them, or you, you kind of like want to help us first and then go over there. <laughs> well, I understand America the most, right? I grew up here. I know the business environment here. I know what is ailing customers here. I know how to make really good software for American manufacturing companies. That isn't to say the software isn't universal. I believe that it is, but um, I'm going to start where I, where I know people and, and where, where mm-hmm. I know the actual customer. So, um, but the goal is to, to imagine kind of a, a connected environment, right? Right, where everything is is shared together, and that's that's really scary. Um, as a, if I have some empathy for manufacturers, it's am I going to expose myself to more competition? Am I going to lose customers because I'm actually not the best, but you know they only know me? Yeah. And really, that that isn't a 
really a concern because every the, the tide is going to rise and, and all boats float when the tide is high, right? And that, that's what we want. We want a high tide going forward forever. Um, and we can do that if we have enough efficiency to make the entire engine better. And we experienced that everywhere. When we had the internet, we networked all these servers and computers together. We increased the value of the entire system and way more people use the internet today than they did in 1992, right? Um, when we networked all these cars together with Lyft and Uber, way more people use taxis and, and ride shares than they used to, right? Um, and, and in general, we see this kind of shared capacities uh, effect and, and the, the, the shame, the irony is that the place that it would actually benefit the most is in manufacturing and, and doesn't exist at all, right? So hmm. that is so interesting. So the, the short-term mission is to get your system into as many places as possible. And then once you do that, try to make it all communicate. Yeah, the, the, the platform is built with that connectivity in mind. It's, it's in all the different design decisions that we make. There's stub outs for it already. There's things that are already working. Um, but the analogy that I like to use is that there are a lot of people that buy cars from Tesla. Now, whether you believe in electrification or not, the Tesla car is a kick-ass car. Right. Um, you might believe in uh, moving off of, you know, carbon uh, sources for fuel. You might want to reduce emissions as well, but you could not care about that at all. And in order for Tesla to survive, they have to make a car that's so amazing that even without all of that, it would be able to sell, right? And and they're able to deliver acceleration and a really great, you know, digital display experience and all these software updates and autopilot and all these other things, right? We want to change the way the world works for the better for everyone, but we understand that no one person is going to be able to foot the bill for that. So if you're going to have to use a system to connect anyway, that system, that ERP platform better be the most kick-ass ERP platform you've ever seen. And that's really how we're going to revolutionize this particular industry. Hmm. Wow. And how, uh, what's the cost of yours compared to the competition? In many cases, just based on the automation that we have, both in implementation and in, in how we're architected, we're roughly one half to one quarter the cost of, of other companies over a five-year period of time. So, um, you know, that that really is, we certainly could increase the, the cost that we have to our customers. We, we could do that, uh, but we really want to deliver something that is amazing. What's the price range? And if I was to do it, um, I, obviously, it depends on how big you are, et cetera. Uh, how much time and how painful is it to implement it? To some extent, for a really simple customer that doesn't require very much complexity out of the system, you could implement it yourself in just a few weeks, maybe a month and a half, which is sounds like a long time. It is a long time to me. But historically, these implementation projects takes months or years. Is it easier or harder if you already have a different one? <laughs> it depends. It depends on what you have, right? A lot of the times, because legacy systems are kind of very fixed, this is what it is. You have to do some gymnastics to kind of contort your data and your business processes to fit this other piece of software. Well, if you want to do what's right for your business, you're going to want to undo all that, get to where your business should be doing anyway. And that process is something that's kind of 
um, irrespective of our software, but still necessary to be done. And that has a very big, uncertain number attached to it. So, Sonny, thank you so much. Is there anything else you want to say to the world? Um, I mean, you've, you've summed it up pretty well, but is there any, any, any other thoughts on your mind? Well, I think uh, I've, I've, I want to recognize what you're doing, just like everybody else that I'm speaking to on, on other shows, that I think that there are a lot of manufacturing companies in, in America and the world, and there just isn't very much uh, community that's built around it, not, not nearly as much as there should be. So mm. uh, shows like this, um, any sort of events, associations, um, I'm, I'm always very grateful that the, anything that does exist already exists. So, I, uh, you know, thank you for doing what you do. And I, I think it's a important part of this entire ecosystem. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. And thanks so much for being on the show.